We are uh, turning the chapter. In my Bible, we're literally turning the page in Romans from chapter 1 to chapter 2 this morning. And so much of Paul's uh, letter to the, to the book of Romans, I, I just am curious, this is like a super informal moment here, but I'm curious uh, if you've been tracking along with our series, how many of you feel like Romans 1, like, wow, never saw it that way. That was so helpful for us as a church to kind of walk through that. Can I just see a show of hands? Like, thought like, man, really, God spoke to my heart. Great. Well, Romans 2, you're going to go like this, and you're going to go like this, okay? That's, that's where we're going today. Romans 1, um, Paul makes the argument of how God makes sinful people righteous. Um, for the majority of Romans 1, we've looked at the misery of humanity, the default condition of our hearts, that humanity is diseased. We've got a, made a bad exchange, which cost us everything in the end. And in chapter 2, uh, Paul is going to press us, like us, uncomfortably this morning. So that's your warning. Don't worry, we're not talking about sex. Sometimes when I, I preach and uh, people know that it's recorded and maybe it, maybe it was like a really impassioned message or something, people will come up to me afterwards or they'll send me an email and they'll ask me like, hey, Dan, where do I get a recording of that? Because that was, that was really good. I really want to send that to my nephew, my son. I wish my daughter was here. To, my, I mean, I re, my mom needs to hear that. And um, I, uh, I totally get that sentiment at some point in my um, Secretly prideful heart, I'm like, yes, they want their son to hear that. But I also, in my jealous pastor's heart, want to look at them and say, well, what about you? Like, what did you get out of what was shared? Right? I want to look at them, and quite honestly, I want to just be like, hey, you judge yourself, man. Like, like you worry about you. I know you. You got a lot going on right now. You, need, you needed it. You needed it. Just look at the person next to you and just tell them, like, hey, you need it. Just go ahead. This is your one chance. Yeah. All right. All right. Calm down. Romans, uh, it follows a similar path of argument as what I just described. Paul makes a statement, and then um, something happens where people are like, yeah, they need to hear that. And then Paul kind of turns the mirror on us. This is Romans 2. So Romans 1, Paul's unloaded on how the Jewish, uh, the world is filled with sinners that betray God in so many ways. And Paul imagines the Jewish recipients, this is the historical situation, the, the Jewish recipients of the letter nodding along in the synagogue as his letter was read, wholeheartedly amening the apostle as he slams the sinfulness of the pagan Gentiles. This is a, that's Gentiles, it's a weird word. It sounds like uh, um, one of those Harry Potter things where it's like the, the muggles and the half-bloods and the... I don't remember the rest, but um, Gentile is really someone who is of non-Jewish descent. Honestly, a lot of Gentiles in this room right now, not a lot of Jews in this room right now, some, but most of us are Gentiles. And so um, Paul has been speaking out against the Gentiles, and there's this group of people, the, the chosen people, the, the Jewish people, who would have been sitting there going like, yeah, Paul, you tell them. One Jewish woman might have thought to herself, I'm going to make sure my Greek neighbor gets a copy of this letter. She really needs it. But in Romans, Paul isn't out to demonstrate Jewish exceptionalism. He's out to show how the gospel meets all people regardless of how high and pure they think they are. And the, the Jewish people, before we get into the actual text, we have to understand this. The Jewish people had a privileged worldview. And what I mean is that in many of their 
extra biblical writings. And many of the ancient documents that we have from the Jewish world, non-canonical writings, writings that are, are ancient, we know that they're what the, the Jews believed in addition to the Bible. Um, and in many of their writings, they uh, readily condemned the Gentiles. There's a, a commentary by Leon Morris, who's a wonderful scholar. He, he points this out. He quotes a few extra biblical sources. Second Esdras 3. It's the only time you'll hear the Apocrypha ever like, quoted from our stage. Um, it says this. Essentially, it says, Weigh us, O God, and see how much better we are than the wicked nations around us. A common teaching among the Israelites was that Abraham guarded the gates of hell and kept all the Jewish people out of it. In their book, the Sanhedrin, chapter 10, verse 1, it states, All Israelites have a share in the world to come. And so the, the mindset amongst the Jewish Christians where we are chosen, we are special, we are extra special, we are exceptional. And so Paul imagines the Jewish believers hearing the atrocities of the world in Romans 1, and he thinks of them saying, yeah, Paul, you get them. You tell those Gentiles that they're scum. Which makes the turn to chapter 2 all the more jarring if you look at it with me. Here's, here's Paul's next statement right out of the gate. He says this. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. If you can flip back in your Bible, mine's actually literally a page back, just but maybe scroll up in your app. But, but notice the language that Paul uses in Romans 1 verses 18 through all the way through the end, verse 32. They, they, they. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Verse 24, God gave them up. Verse 26, for that reason, God gave them. Verse 28, since they did not. The, the language is third person, chapter 1. Here we have in chapter 2, it totally turns. What do you see? Chapter 2, you see um, Paul speaking not just about this ubiquitous community or this, this group of people, but rather pointedly to a specific person. It's second person. It's a rhetorical technique that Paul uses here to help your audience understand that they're just at fault, as much as at fault as the others. And look at who has no excuse. Paul even says it if you see Romans 2 verse 1. He says, you have no excuse, oh man. Um, that's not a sarcastic like jab. Oh man is not an um, indication that somehow women are excluded. Uh, this is a, a Greek way of speaking. This is a, 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 a day that, that Paul would have been showing. I'm setting up a, a debate. I'm, I'm creating for myself a hypothetical person who I'm going to interact with in a moment. And this person is going to serve as a foil to what you're thinking. But, but you don't realize that I'm talking about you because I'm talking about this man. See what, see what I mean? It's, it's a very sneaky, um, wonderful way to bring out people's um, hypocrisy. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He says, For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I know a few judges. And um, fortunately, the judges I've known have been people of, of good, uh, uh, good moral character. I've never seen a judge double parked, but I wish I had because I'd want to point it out to them. And I have never seen a judge break the, the speeding limit, but I wish I had because a couple of judges got me on breaking the speeding limit. And um, what he's saying is that uh, 
Sometimes we as people, we condemn others for a standard that we fail to live up to. And the word for that is what? What's the word for this? Hypocrisy. The word is hypocrisy. This week, Pastor Jared, um, in, our, in our meetings together, he gave a definition of hypocrisy, which I really liked. I'll just quote him. He said, a, a hypocrite is not someone who teaches good behavior or morals, but fails to live, them out, live out that teaching. If that were the case, no one could preach God's word. A hypocrite, instead, is someone who teaches good behavior and then sees others not living by that standard judges them for not living by that standard, and then goes and does the same thing themselves. There is a judgment piece to hypocrisy. Hypocrites usually justify themselves. They disparage the behaviors of others, but with complete spiritual blinders on, they do the same thing without even seeing it. And so here's the big idea. Whenever you pass judgment on another, Paul says this very clearly. It's in the text. You condemn yourself. I see this in my kids all the time. Um, I have a four-year-old and a three-year-old, and we all stink at sharing. My daughter, on a daily basis, will sit down at my son's toys. He's playing with them, and she'll insert herself, and she'll start playing with him, and surprisingly, it's fine. Like, I, I start to get up as a dad to, like, break up the fight, and I'm like, oh, they're okay. Like, he's sharing nicely with her. How about that? I'll just pretend like I'm not even here. Don't want to ruin that moment. And then about 15 seconds later, she'll go on to play with some toys that belong to her. And um, Miles, my son, will kind of look at that and go like, oh, yeah, these toys are lame. I'm going to go over here and play with your toys. And he'll insert himself in her game. And all of a sudden, bloody cries from the room next door, Dad! Miles isn't sharing with me! So I walk over there, I assess the situation like a responsible dad does, try and make heads or tails of what's going on, who hit whom, who, what, what, what kid is going to the ER, and I realize, oh, it's just toys. Okay. Well, Elon, these are your toys. By very definition, it's your responsibility to share with him, not him to share with you. He's trying to share with you, but you're not letting him share. You are condemning yourself. Now, that conversation doesn't go well with a four-year-old. But you see the picture. You understand how that works. Though you think it's their selfishness as fault, it's actually yours. You are condemning yourself. And here's the irony for the people that Paul was writing to you, the Jews. They thought that the Gentiles were full of sin, and, and because the Jews had the law, they were superior to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were idolaters. They had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's in Romans chapter 1. They worshiped the creation instead of the creator. And in the declaration of that judgment, the Jewish people were superior to the Gentiles. The Jewish people were incriminating themselves. They were passing judgment on those people. And in doing so, they were actually committing the same sin of idolatry that they were blasting in the first place. Paul handles this situation brilliantly. He says this, look at verse 2. He says, we know. It switches from second person to, to first person inclusive. We all know, don't we? If you want to get on somebody's good side to turn their head around, you say, hey, yeah, I, we know that, right? We know that. We know she's crazy, but just go with us for a moment. We know that those who practice such things are guilty of the judgment of God. And Paul is helping his audience feel a part of the elite, converted congregation of the elect. We know. We have the truth. We're enlightened. We are right. 
In one sense, like my daughter thinks to herself, well, daddy likes me best. This is her thought process. Daddy likes me best, so I'm going to have him punish you for being bad. The Jews thought, well, God chose us. He likes us best. We have special knowledge that the judgment of God is rightly going to fall upon those who who knowingly do evil. And in highlighting this common knowledge, Paul is also making a statement. Whose judgment falls upon the wicked? It's God's judgment. The Jews were actually taking God's place as the judge. They were exchanging the privileged position of the creator who judges inequity, and they were inserting themselves in that position. They were thinking of themselves higher than they ought. They were guilty of the exact equal and opposite error of the pagan Gentiles. So, so here's how it works. Just stay with me. If, if the Gentiles were guilty by their lawlessness to indulge in every sort of passion in the world that they could lend their heart to, the Jews were guilty by their legalism, by putting such strict laws down in place, thinking that that was the thing that was going to help them escape the judgment of God in the end times. Either way, you have removed God from the equation. You're just doing it with more religious finesse. It's way more sneaky. It's, it's way harder to spot the self-righteous person with the naked eye. It feels smarmy. You don't know why, but you know it's not right. We sin by replacing the creator with ourselves, but we can also replace the judge with ourselves. That is the moment that many of us have had. You've seen this in your life. You've seen this play it out as one of your friends has come to you in that moment of frustrating uh, gossip where someone else complains about how much of a, a gossip someone else is. I can't believe they would talk about so-and-so that way. Who do they think they are? I mean, I would never put someone down the way they put that person down. It was despicable. I'm appalled. My heart hurts. Paul, pointing out their hypocrisy, he keeps pressing the issue. Look with me at verse 3. Paul says this, Do you suppose, O man, again, O man, You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Paul says, okay, okay, so you do these things, why? Because you think you're going to get out on the day of God's wrath? Paul is being emphatic here, but the, the logic is sound. If you can scurry out from underneath the judgment of the wrath of God, then God is not actually just. And the Jews are being confronted with this reality. You cannot escape the judgment. You cannot escape condemnation. You cannot escape the sentence. So maybe there's another option. Maybe you know that you're going to be judged, but um, you choose something else. And this, I think, is the option that most of us choose today. The reason why we persist in our hypocrisy is, is probably this. Look at verse uh, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's Kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This is an option that Paul cuts off, but a lot of us cling to today. They say, oh, I'm sure God wouldn't actually judge me. He, he's a loving and kind God. He wouldn't want to send me to hell. God doesn't want to condemn his creation. He wants all people to be saved. This is the, this is the logic, and some of this is even theologically true. God desires that all would come to saving faith in Christ. But God in his judgment is completely just. We're guilty. The philosopher uh, Hein once said cynically, he said, God will forgive. It's his trade. It's what he does. It's what he's good at. 
Paul rages against this type of thinking. In in the ancient Greek language, Paul actually writes this way. He says, he, he, he switches the word order. He says, or do the riches of God's kindness and the riches of his forbearance and his eternal patience cause you to hate him? Because God is kind, it's not meant to allow us a pass to do whatever we want and assume that because we're chosen, we can just live our lives as aliens on earth. It's actually meant to lead us to repent, not to, consider, to continue in self-righteousness. And there's an attitude that is rewarded with a certain consequence. L- look at this in verse 5 with me. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. First, Paul says simply, you condemn yourself whenever you judge anyone else. And now he says very clearly here, you are storing up for yourself wrath. That's the second thing that we see here in the self-righteous attitude is actually someone who stores up wrath for themselves. And Jesus once said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And Paul uses the same turn of phrase here for those who are judgmental and have self-righteousness about them. They are storing up for themselves wrath which will be returned to them from heaven. What a pitiful picture. Imagine the poor soul who smugly goes around on their high horse with their superiority complex, a member of the elite class assuming by their status they have favor with God. They are so blind to their reward that they think they are accumulating. They think they're earning favor of God by comparing themselves to other people and they're thinking higher of themselves. But in reality, they're accumulating not riches but God's wrath. What they don't realize is that their good deeds are actually toxic, damning, and dead. I heard this phrase uh, the other day called the cobra effect. And actually, I think it applies really well here. It's used to describe a situation where someone's intention to help out ended up in things going drastically wrong. It comes from a fascinating story. Uh, There was a problem in New Delhi, India. Um, They actually had a cobra problem. Not a Mustang cobra problem. uh, Like a snake cobra problem. There were way too many cobras around the, 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 the town where people were living. And so the government thought, well, we have to do something, but we don't have enough money to like, you know, just nuking the place. That's a bad option. So like, what are we gonna do? And the government came up with this program. They said, here's the deal. You bring us a dead cobra, we'll give you money. And you can imagine some of the people were like, challenge accepted. And you don't have to um, like engaging battle of snakes, but you're going to kill a few cobras. And sure enough, right away, the program started working. All, all of a sudden, the population was going down. People were getting money for dead cobras. And um, soon, people, though, they realized that there was actually money to be made here. And so people started breeding cobras. They'd get to a certain size, and then they'd kill them, and they'd bring them to the government. And the government, once they found out that they were, like, rewarding the people for, like, domesticated cobras, they, they said, whoa, 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 enough's enough. We ain't paying you for that, and they shut the program down. But unfortunately, all these breeders had tons of cobras, and what did they do with them? They just let them back out in the wild, and guess what happened in New Delhi? They have more cobras today than when the program first started. This is self-righteousness. Self-righteous people believe they possess God's favor because they live a certain way, they're better than other people, and they're helping God clean up his streets. 
but they're blind to the way God sees them. Every interaction they have with God is not acknowledging their need for him, but rather their request for a reward based upon all the cobras they've killed, when in reality, self-righteous people are actually breeding more snakes. This is all going to return back on them on what Paul calls the day of wrath, what we more commonly call the day of judgment. We can say a lot of things about the day of judgment, but for now, I simply just need to say this. It's the day on which the wrath of God will reach its final consummation against the wickedness of the world. And the cross, praise God for this, the cross is the day of judgment for the believer's soul. That we don't have to worry about our souls being eternally damned, but we have the blessing of receiving on our judgment day the, the rewards for what we have done in this life as God welcomes us into his kingdom. But not so for those who live apart from him. We need to keep in mind the verses that are about to come do not actually tell us how to be saved. They just tell us what the day of judgment will look like. It's a real day of accounting of our lives before the Lord. And we're going to talk about how to be saved in the coming weeks. Um, But for right now, we look at the day of judgment, which is simply the day that is coming when God and Christ will judge the lives of those who did not know him or the works of the people who did. And look at verses 6 through 11 as Paul explains this. This is one, one big thought, and I'll break this down in a moment. He says, He will render to each one according to his works, that's God, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. We like that. But for those who are self-seeking and they do not obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And if I were just to break these verses down in order, I would actually miss Paul's point. He does something rhetorically here that is beautiful. And if this was a theology class, I would show you the beauty of his chiasm and all this stuff that you're like, so what does it mean? I want to show you this, is that actually Paul has formed this sentence in couplets. Verse 6 goes with verse 11. Verse 7 goes with verse 10. And verse 8 goes with verse 9. Verse 6 and 7, 6 and 11, they say the same thing. Verse 10 and, and 7, they say the same thing. Verses 8 and 9, they say the same thing. And the thing about a chiasm is that um, it, it looks like this, right? And whatever happens in the middle of the chiasm is actually the author's most important point. And that would happen here in verses 8 and 9. If we walk through this, we see then, according to that structure, Paul, Paul is making this logical statement. He's saying, God is impartial. God is a judge who doesn't look upon the puppy dog faces of the people standing before him and grant them some, some leave because they have an opportunity to uh, quiver their lips. No, God impartial, it means he doesn't consider their face. The verse 7 and 10 say, those who do good are going to receive glory, honor, and peace in eternal life. And verses 8 and 9 say the exact opposite. Those who do evil will be punished. And here's Paul's big idea. It's very simple. It sounds so strange to us, but it's very true. Is that you reward yourself. Paul is just stepping through with the the Jewish people saying this. By your hypocrisy, you condemn yourself. By your self-righteousness, you're storing up wrath for yourself. And on that day, you will be rewarding yourself. In salvation, this is not true. You don't reward yourself in salvation. God rewards you. But in the record of our works on earth, this is true. God will render. He will give rewards or punishment based upon each person's 
works. One theologian summarizes it for us this way. He says, this is the invariable teaching of the Bible, that judgment will be on the basis of works, though salvation is all of grace. Works are important. They're the outward expression of what the person is deep down. In the believer, they are the expression of faith, and in the unbeliever, the expression of unbelief. And so, friends, we have to see this. Who you are in this life today matters. The drift of your life today matters in eternity. And we can imagine the the Jews hearing all of this, and to this point, they would probably agree, but when Paul says in verse 9, it would probably provoke a war. And it's the part of the verses that carry the most weight in this section. He's made the point that judgmental people are worthy of judgment, but this whole time the Jews would have been thinking of some imaginary rhetorical opponent to Paul, this old man that he keeps talking about. But finally, Paul comes right out and says it plainly. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And yes, to the Jews first. And this is his big aha moment. And so what happens when a religiously privileged, exceptional culture hears that their actions against the minority culture are not good, but are actually worthy of condemnation? No, not us. I wonder if the Jewish impulse was to attack Paul's character, call him a liberal, call him a false teacher, marginalize him. And coincidentally, this is the exact situation that found Paul writing this letter in the first place. Paul was trying to lovingly rebuke the Jewish pride, but because the Jewish church was questioning Paul's authenticity since he was converting the Gentiles. He wanted to rebuke that, establish reconciliation in the church. And Romans is essentially Paul's theology of how God's grace reaches both the unrighteous as well as the self-righteous. But what happens when a religiously privileged, exceptional culture hears that their actions and attitudes against a minority culture are not good, but actually worthy of condemnation? Well, to know, don't we have to hold up a mirror? Here's the funny thing. We can hear the rebuke from Paul to the Jews and think to our enlightened selves like, yeah, Paul, go get them. Go get those hard-hearted Jews. You may have thought in your mind this whole entire time while I've spent the past 25 minutes explaining Paul's deconstruction of Jewish pride, and you might have had this thought, why are we even talking about this? We know better than the Jews. We can be guilty of the exact same judgmental attitude of religious superiority that the gospel speaks against and condemn ourselves by our own blindness and store up wrath for ourselves based upon our own blindness, and be surprised on the day of judgment that our rewards are not grand like we think we deserve, but actually quite small. I mean, how do we, how do we not see ourselves in these verses? Having walked through a portion of Romans today that is thick with rebuke and blunt in the reminder that all people need the kindness and the mercy of the creator, how how can I not lovingly call out our blindness as a culture of people who have justified ourselves in our brand of theology, in our promotion of a moral majority, and in our pride of our American exceptionalism? 
are we not prone to the same drift in our hearts that Paul called out against the Jews? And we can know we're guilty of doing this very simply. If you just picture Jesus in your mind and you think that he was a white, reformed, evangelical American who had a master's degree and watched a certain news channel on TV and would drive a certain class car and live in a certain style house, who was a one-issue voter and had no time for anyone who disagreed with anyone else that uh, differed from his viewpoint, that's, if that's your Jesus, you're blind. We... We're tempted to make Jesus in our own image because religiously exceptional people think they are as good as their Savior. Brothers and sisters, we are not exceptional. We are a people of selective outrage, decrying on social media the tragedy of today, all the while doing nothing to bring the gospel to shine its light in the real world. Here's, you're all sitting there thinking like, Dan, what are you saying? Do you hate America? The answer is no. Love this country. But here's an example of the the, um, hypocrisy of what I have to call the white evangelical church. We cry foul as Christians over abortion. And you know what? I'm good with that. I am great with us raising the gates of hell over that issue. We should. The mass murder of unborn babies is against what God's word teaches about the sanctity of life. And we as a church, we have a sanctity of life. Sunday, we celebrate it, we champion it, and we breathe a lot of resources into the Women's Center of Northwest Indiana. All good things, we must do that. We should not stop. And what we'll do is we'll kick, we'll scream, we'll yell, and we'll all vote on this one issue. But not too far from here in the Midwest is a town called Flint, Michigan. And for the past three years, women in Flint, Michigan, have mysteriously experienced a drop in fertility and a spike in fetal death syndrome. In the past two years, it's estimated that the amount of babies that should have been born, but for mysterious reasons were not, over and above the normal rate of miscarriage was 257 babies. 257 babies have died on our watch because we cared not for the poor. But we'll raise hell about Planned Parenthood and all the while ignore those in Flint who are losing their babies, not out of their own wickedness, but out of our society's indifference to the poor. Which is worse? And here's how, because I'm, I'm with you in this tension. Here's how we will tackle these issues, right? Here, here's a little glimpse into our own culture that we're blind to. Here's how we, Anglo evangelicals, white evangelicals will do this. Um, and by the way, this is not me coming to grips with my whiteness either. I've known I was white since I was born. And um, that's how God chose to make me. And God chose to make you how he chose to make you. It's great. But um, I, am, I can't change the color of my skin, and, but I did choose the affiliation with the word evangelical. And um, if more people think the word evangelical describes a political party and not a Christian who takes the Bible seriously, we've, we've messed something up. So, so here's the approach that we often take to social issues like the one I just raised. We will analyze them. Let's just get all the facts and figure everything out. 
We will dissect them. We will talk them to death. We will conclude that the problem is systemic and bigger than us. We will assume that the the best course of action is to, to, to try and get legislation passed, all the while we are lulling ourselves into a sense of inaction. But listen, when the water in a poor black community is killing a fetus, and the pro-life white evangelical world doesn't seem to even care about that, we condemn ourselves. Do you see how it works? We prove our hypocrisy. We, we just further entrench ourselves in our own exceptionalism as we sip our water and watch our Netflix every night. We live in our world with first world problems and when the people are in our own backyard uh, struggle and live as if they lived in the third world, we call them blights or lazy or entitled or a burden. What's funny about that word third world is that today anthropologists and theologians together have renamed it the majority world because the majority of the world's population lives in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And we live in an exceptional culture, but friends, God isn't advancing the gospel here as much as he is exploding the gospel in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. Which has to ask us, make us raise this question. What do we do with the fact that the majority of our theology in the church comes from European men who have notoriously struggled with the idea that all people are created in the image of God, regardless of their race or gender? And as people from Africa and Asia and Latin America begin to contribute to the voices of our theology, are we willing to bend our ear to an African theologian or a Latin American Christian or to love our persecuted brothers and sisters in Asia without assuming they know less the God of the Bible than you and I do because they didn't go to our type of non-denominational church or our preferred seminary? This, Romans 2 hits us hard. Like, do we think God is going to give us a pass on Judgment Day because we're Calvinists? Do we think God's going to allow us to linger in passivity and judgmentalism with no reckoning for our works? Friends, these are questions that I'm not trying to haunt you. I'm trying to haunt me. This is such a mirror for our church. It's ridiculous. And in these questions, I know deep down we are people who think we are exceptional. And brothers and sisters, we are not exceptional. Here's the point. The gospel is that sweet reminder to us in so many ways we are broken. Amen? We are prideful. We are arrogant. God, help us not be a community that thinks we are exceptional. But God, help us not judge the people that he's called us to love. God, help us to keep you in your place as creator and as the judge. And if I had to pull this all together, you see these words up here. You condemn yourself, you store up wrath for yourself, you reward yourself. What is Paul actually saying through Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11? It's a very simple call, and it's a call to each one of us, particularly to this campus today. You, me, humble yourself. So if we subscribe to a type of American exceptionalism banking on white evangelical high ground, we are banking on the wrong thing and we must repent. Paul addressed the Jews and their superiority, but you know what's funny is that God had already told them what he wanted of his people. 
He said it years prior in Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 66. I'm going to read this to you, but I want you to see here how, how God sets himself up as the creator and as the judge in this one verse. Look, he says, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is, let's say it together, humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So thank God that he's kind and forbearing and patient. Thank God that he allows his people time to be broken over their sins. May today we be humbled anew. May today we start to have our eyes open to what God is doing, not just here at Bethel HP, but which coincidentally is my totally biased favorite place to be on a Sunday morning. But may we not think that because we think we have anything figured out or because we know, here's what I want to say. This place right here, God is doing some amazing things in. And the moment that we think it's because of us and not because of him, and the moment that we think that someone's not welcome here because they're not like us, we have lost it all. And what I want to be so amazing about this place, what God's gospel is calling us to here in this place, particularly on Sunday mornings, is that we might be a place where we know we're sinners who are being changed by the Savior. So may all hypocrisy be far from us. As we press through this Romans series, this is going to toy with the question of our racial sensitivity as primarily white evangelicals who enjoyed collectively uh, historical power. And um, one of the things that might happen in our church as a result of this Roman series, and I pray that it does, is actually that the people of Hobart and Portage might actually get to spend time in downtown Gary and get to meet some people in downtown Gary who are brothers and sisters in the Lord, who are full of God's joy and full of his worth. I know that's only going to happen if we let the gospel humble us and let God's kindness lead us to repent of our pride. So we need to do that right now.